so glad that you're here. Uh, happy Independence Day, right? Weekend. God bless America. Amen. Uh, you, you know, let me let me just read something that one of our founding fathers uh, said to to the world back in 1776. Listen to this. It's by Ben Franklin. Anybody remember who Benjamin Franklin was? One of the great founders of our nation, a brilliant man. He was an inventor. He was a philosopher. He was a statesman. And he said this. He says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire cannot rise without his aid. We've been assured in this sacred writings that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in building a political building no better than the builders of Babel. Isn't that incredible? I mean, he was saying right at the very founding of our nation that God needed to be in the middle of it all. And the truth is, is that as we look around in our society, um, God has blessed our land, no doubt. God has blessed this nation. Do you feel that? I mean, there's not too many places I'd rather live than than the good old U.S. of A. I mean, there are other great places in the world. Don't get me wrong. There are great places all over the world. But I can't think of many better than this place. And and we are blessed. But I fear that, that we're riding on the blessings of our forefathers. That God has been forgotten by our country that God has been on the outside for a while in our country. And you just gotta wonder, how long will it continue? How long will the blessings continue if we don't somehow figure out how to build our nation on the bedrock of Jesus Christ and his word, amen? Now, friends, uh, so about once a year, around July 4th weekend, uh, we do something that very few other churches do. Uh, We take a weekend to celebrate God and country. We take a weekend to talk about our heritage, where we're from, and what kind of people we've been and what kind of people we should be, what what our nation is founded on and what our nation should still be built on. And and I get it. Whenever we start talking about history, um, people, you know, start writing me bad emails in the office saying, what a waste. Why are we talking about history in church? I don't need a history lesson. I go to school for that. And especially young people, their eyes start to roll back. I see you guys. Your eyes roll back in your head and you start to doze off. No, 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 don't do that. Zero in. What we're going to talk about today is so important because listen, we have to figure out a way to look back in order to look forward. I mean, it's that way in all of our individual lives, right? It's, it's true. Like you have to look back in your life and take an account every once in a while where you've been and what you've done, the mistakes you've made, the good things that you've done, figure out what works and what doesn't work in order to figure out where you're going in life. I think as a nation, as a people, we need to do that too. And and so this morning, we are going to look backwards a little bit in order to figure out how to look forward a little bit. Um, And I'm excited about this. We're going to just have a hodgepodge of of history, a hodgepodge of, of Americana that all points to our need for God to be in the middle of it all, in the middle of it all. Um, and so here's how we're going to begin today. Uh, if it's okay with you, and again, this can get a little awkward and people think this is a little strange, but I don't think it's strange at all. Um, we would like to stand, or I would like to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance together. I think many of us have not done that uh, since we were in grade school. And so would you go ahead and stand? And I would like to invite my, my friend up to the stage to lead us. Her name is Trista Sample. Could you guys lead, uh, invite uh, Trista to the stage? Welcome her to the stage. Just to go ahead and lead us. Please face the flag and put your right hand over your heart. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, for indivisible, and visible, for liberty and justice for all. Woo! Yeah. Good job, girl. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great job. Didn't she do a good job? Yeah. 
We're going to talk a little bit about history today and about how God has woven in and through our history as a people. Uh, but we have a very, very special treat. Uh, how many were here uh, last night as, at our little uh, July 4th celebration outside? Wasn't that a great event? Oh, my goodness. If you weren't here, duh, I don't know what to do with you. Uh, but it was a great, great uh, e- event. And uh, we had the privilege of not only talking about history, but but hearing it and seeing it lived out in front of us. Um, because I invited a couple old dudes to join me up here on stage. And so would you guys welcome Mr. Glenn Smith to the stage here? He's been a longtime friend of mine. And Jim Buchanan. And um, we're going to have a little, um, just a little perspective of history um, from a couple of people who've lived a lot longer than almost anybody in this room. And I tell you what, as a society, it kills me because I think we marginalize our elders and I think that we put them on the back burner and think that they've had their life and blah, blah, blah. But I'm telling you what, that is a tragic mistake as Americans. Um, we have a gem in our grandparents. We have gold in our grandparents. And I don't mean their wallets either, right? Um, God has given us uh, the older generation and the scripture says we should learn from them. We should we should glean from them. We should get from them their wisdom. And so I'd like to do that a little bit today, if it's okay with y'all, okay? So um, we're going to start with Jim here. Jim, uh, how old are you? Well, yesterday, I'll say it was my 92nd 4th of July. Woo! 92, and you're looking good. You. You're looking good. Thank you. Yeah, and Glenn, uh, how old are you? 77. I'm just a kid. <laughs> That's good. Um, so uh, let's just begin with it. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. Uh, just tell us about growing up because we live in a totally different world than you guys lived in. Right. I mean, just a totally different world growing up. Um, so you guys remember an era where, where there was... Uh, no electricity, no computers, no phones, nothing. I mean, it's crazy, you know? So, Glenn, you were telling us in the first service a we little bit about... We didn't even have a radio. That's crazy. Okay. But, Glenn, tell us a little bit about you growing up real quick, because you, you shared some stuff in the first service I thought was incredible. Okay. I grew up in Pennsylvania, a family of uh, seven brothers and three sisters. Uh, we had a farmhouse, two rooms downstairs, and... There was actually three upstairs after we divided the big barracks for the boys. Had to make a room for a girl. But uh, we had no electricity, no plumbing. Uh, We heated with wood and coal. Uh, We were close. Uh, Not too many fights, but us guys hung together. And uh, we had a good life. We had a lot of fun growing up. Yeah. And, and did you grow up in a home without electricity? And did you grow up in a home without electricity? Uh, no, I, uh, my uh, grandfather owned a farm. I, we, I'm from, actually from Tennessee. I was, that's where I was born. I came north uh, during the Depression years in 1929. My dad came a year earlier and finally found a job and sent for the family. But my grandfather's farm down in Tennessee had no electricity, a lamp, you went from one room to another while you uh, duke a lamp. If you took a bath on Saturday night, that was the bath night, while you had a tub, and uh, I'd say nine out of ten times you shared the water with somebody else. Now that's crazy. (laughs) And you think you got it tough, right? It's a totally different era. First of all, I want to say I'm, I was born 92 years ago, but... I was born in the best country in the United in the world. I'd say, as this United Amen. States is, Amen. and I think you'll all agree with that. Yeah. So, Glenn, you you were telling uh, about uh, TV and radio, and the first time you got to see TV, and your neighbor had a television. It was kind of a freaky thing. Tell us about that. Yeah, she lived about a half a mile away. She had a uh, TV that was probably, if I can measure it out here. About that big a square with a screen about that big a <laughs> so square. So the, the box is this big and the little picture tube is this big. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, on Monday nights, us kids could go down and stand on her front porch 
and look in the window and watch The Lone Ranger. And that was a big deal. Did you like The Lone Ranger? Oh, yes. That was one of my favorite programs. He was talking about a TV. The first one we had in my family was a teletone. It was nine inches. Can you imagine looking at a television that's nine inches uh, and the whole family sitting around looking at it? And, and now our kids carry around not only electricity, right? We get ticked off when our battery dies after nine hours, right? And they can watch TV right in their hand. It's crazy. I purchased for the family, I purchased a bubble that was about this large and put it in front of the TV to make the screen much larger. So, and, uh, and one of my favorite stories, Glenn, was about the ice cream, because I'm into ice cream. Anybody into ice cream? Oh, glory to God. Um, so, but Glenn, you told, I, I freaked out when I heard this. I didn't even think of this, but you only ate ice cream in the wintertime, which makes no sense to any of us as Americans at all. Tell us why. Uh, well, we had to uh, go in the creek and break up the ice, take it home, and my mom would make the ice cream, and we would churn it, and it was good ice cream. <laughs> was it better than what we have now? Yes, sir. <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and you, you were saying that you remember when radio came in, and all of a sudden, out of a box, you could hear yes. people's voices. Well, uh, at one day, so when I got a little older, we'd, we'd make our own little... Uh, radios. You know, you get a little kit and you'd make your own radio. So you had a few, a few stations. And that was a great thing uh, at those days and everything. Jeez. And so to, uh, see, to see the United States put a man on the moon coming from that era, you, that must have been just unbelievable. Well, when I was a youngster, well, we used to have uh, comic books and used to be Ro Buck Rogers in the, uh, in the uh, spaceship. And they, oh, well, he thought that was a fantasy. But in 1968, was it, that uh, they put uh, a man on the moon? And, uh, Crazy. So the world has just been spinning and spinning, and it just keeps growing and changing. Um, um, yeah. So let me, let, me, let me tell you a couple things about these two men up here. It is a great honor to have them. Uh, this young man right here, uh, when the world went to war in World War II in 1941, when the United States was attacked by Japan, and we declared war on Japan and Germany, this young man right here signed up to go fight on behalf of the American people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much credit for that. Uh, I joined the Marines in 1942 of April. In those days, the draft was still at 21, and you had to have your mother or your father's signature in order to go. I, took, I joined with a buddy of mine. I took it home, and my mother said, no way are you going off to war. Well, after a little persuasion, she finally, and my dad consented, and the buddy that I went in with, I'm very sorry to say he didn't come home. But God took care of me, and I spent four years in the Marine Corps, and, it's, uh, and it was just uh, not only the uh, men at that time, but later on the women started coming into the Marine Corps too, and so God bless them too. You know? Amen. Wow. And, uh, and Mr. Glenn here during the Vietnam era, uh, he signed up to serve our nation. And what's unbelievable is when your generation came home from the war, uh, you guys were hailed as heroes. And when Glenn's generation came home from the war, um, you guys were not. It's a big difference. Uh, when I came home uh, on furlough, I'd go into a restaurant. I was single at the time. I'd go into a restaurant, and somebody would always step up and say, hey, Marine, let me buy your... Buy your lunch or so. This gentleman came home while they were throwing rocks at him, the soldiers, some of the and, things. And, Glenn, we are sorry. We are sorry. You deserve the honor. Yep.
And don't forget, during World War II, this country was attacked. We didn't attack anybody else. We were attacked. That's right. <laughs> and so we had thousands and thousands of young men and women that went to the call. That's right. So looking back, you guys have lived a lot of history. And uh, there are things in our country that you're proud of, that makes you proud to be an American. Glenn, why don't you share, as you look back over your time, what makes you proud to be an American? Just how much we are blessed with our freedom. It didn't come easy, and it never will. And not just our freedom, but our families. We have to keep the word of God out for our children, our grandchildren. Amen that they might accept Jesus and, and keep the name of the Lord as front and center in their life. Amen. Because our family life is declining. And we need to pray for our young. Yep. Amen. And our country. Amen. And uh, Jim... Looking back, what are you proud of? What, what makes you proud to be an American? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I look around the, uh, yesterday uh, when we were out at the picnic and I see these families, these young families uh, gathering together. They say the family is dead, but if you look around and you look around the congregation now, and the, I didn't come to the first, I had a misunderstanding of the first congregation, but the young people, that's one thing that brought me into this church my granddaughter went here, my daughter went here, and uh, the thing is that I looked around and I see these young people, and I said, what's this old codger doing in this young people's uh, thing? But I tell you, it makes my heart feel good, and when I go home, I feel, I feel good the rest of the day because I see so many young people, and you have your child care, your kindergarten, and the youngsters, they... My granddaughter, she comes home, she sings the songs that they teach her back there, and uh, well, it makes my heart feel good, and yeah. makes me feel younger, I'll tell you, that's one reason why. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and so you, you kind of incorporated a little bit of this already, but I asked these guys and the other experiences, what are you worried about for our future? And, and Glenn, you were talking about the family. You're, you're worried for the family. Absolutely. Uh, so many kids growing up with, and you know, in broken homes and no father figure in their life. Uh, that's starting out on a on a rough road for them. Yep. Uh, we have to be mentors to them and take them in and love them and. Uh, Try and teach them the right, the right way to go in their life. Yeah. And uh, I think if you teach a child when he's young, he'll remember. Yeah. And it might take a long time for him to come back to know God, but they will. Amen. I've seen it in my own family. Amen. Amen. And Jim? Well, the thing that worries me... The churches, they do something, the will of the people, the will of the people should prevail over uh, these, but like we put in a TV scene at uh, in City Hall in the, in the, at Christmas time, and some federal judge comes along because somebody said they don't like it, and he, he uh, removes it. Or they put a cross on the side of the road from church, some church does, somebody doesn't like it, the federal judge will come along, and out it goes. And I, I think there should be a change in that where the federal judge can rule over the churches. Amen. Well said. Gentlemen, thank you for serving our country, and thank you for sharing part of your life with us today. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you.
Wasn't that nice? I mean, just to look back a little bit. And uh, our, our world has changed. There is no doubt it is changing. Um, but some things need to remain the same, right? Some things need to remain the same. Uh, last night, as we were talking, we, we talked a lot about the family. And the family is changing. And uh, as I look forward in America, I'm, I'm worried for the family. Because if, if the basic unit called the family, mom, dad, kids, if, the, if that doesn't survive, if it doesn't remain strong, if it doesn't thrive, we are going to be in trouble, friends. We are going to be in trouble. And so we, we have a lot to pray for, and we got a lot to work for. Amen? All right. So this is how it ends, thought Charles now. A fugitive slave, Charles had enjoyed two years of freedom before a slave catcher found him in Troy, New York. He was arrested and brought to trial to determine if he could remain free or if he would be returned to slavery. As Charles waited in the courtroom, the judge delivered his decision. Charles would be returned to slavery in Virginia. After the sentencing, Charles looked out the second story window at the street below, where a large group of anti-slavery protesters had gathered. Suddenly, a plan came to his mind. He would jump into the arms of the crowd below and escape to freedom. He scrambled out onto the window ledge, but before he could jump, the officers grabbed him and pulled him back inside. Charles didn't know it, but in the back of the courtroom, disguised as an elderly black woman carrying a food basket, was Harriet Tubman. Harriet was in Troy visiting a cousin, and when she heard of Charles's trial, she knew that she had to do what she could to help. As she waited and prayed silently, a plan popped into Harriet's head, but she was a visitor, and she didn't know if the good people of Troy would help Charles escape. It was a good sign that Charles had tried to jump into the arms of the crowd. It showed that he was courageous and committed to escaping, and that he had confidence that the crowd would help him. Harriet's escape plan was risky but worth trying. A police wagon was waiting to carry Charles away. The large, angry crowd had the officers worried, so they waited for it to disperse. Instead, it kept growing bigger. After a long wait, they announced, if you will clear the stairs and make a path to the wagon, we will bring the prisoner down the front way. Harriet found a spot at the bottom of the stairs. Charles walked past her, handcuffed, with guards on either side. Instantly, the frail elderly woman transformed herself. Taking the guards by surprise, she grabbed hold of Charles and ran into the crowd. She was struck again and again. An eyewitness reported she was repeatedly beaten over the head with policemen's clubs, but she never for a moment released her hold until the police were literally worn out with their exertions. The two were knocked onto the ground by one of the marshals. They got up, only to be knocked down again. With wrists bound, Charles was all but helpless. Blood streamed from his head. Drag us out, Harriet shouted to the crowd. Take him to the river. Don't let them have him. The crowd swept the pair away from the marshals and toward the river. Charles rowed across. Harriet followed in a ferry boat, accompanied by almost 400 abolitionists dedicated to keeping Charles from being recaptured. But the rescue was not over. The police on either side had been, on the other side had been alerted by telegraph, and they were waiting for the rowboat. They grabbed Charles and took him into police custody, locking him upstairs in the judge's office. Harriet and her followers mobbed the building, throwing rocks at the policemen posted at the entrance and at every window. The police shot back in response, aiming over the heads of the crowd. The crowd fell back. Suddenly, a big, strong black man broke from the crowd and dashed toward the building. He slammed his shoulder into the door and he broke it. In a moment, he was knocked down by a deputy with a hatchet. Badly wounded, the man's body blocked the door so that it could not be shut. A dozen men poured into the building. As they tried to go up the stairs, the police fired down on them. But before the police could reload, Harriet and other black women rushed past the wounded men, grabbed Charles, and carried him outside, put him in a wagon. Suddenly, Charles was on his way to Canada and to freedom. 
In their reports on the incident, one local paper said, the rescuers numbered many of our most respectable citizens, lawyers, editors, public men, and private individuals. The rank and file, though, were black, and African Fury is entitled to claim the greatest share in this rescue. Another paper reported, this incident has developed a more intense anti-slavery spirit here than was ever known before. Working together, the people of Troy had won a great victory over an unjust system and struck a blow for freedom. Harriet Tubman was born a slave, but died a free woman at 91. After escaping slavery herself, Harriet Tubman was singularly responsible for leading over 400 enslaved people to freedom through her efforts with the Underground Railroad. One of the Bible verses that inspired her was Jesus' words found in John 15, 12 through 13, which reads, This is my command. Love one another the way I have loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You know, we have been blessed as a nation to have great heroes, great heroes, men and women, who have stepped up for the cause of freedom, who have put their lives on the line, who have uh, literally given up a house and home and life uh, for the common good. And, and you know what, friends? America needs heroes. America needs heroes today. And when you and I, when we do even the smallest acts of kindness, when we stand up for what is good and noble and true and honorable, when we stand up against injustice, we become a hero. And I think that's what our nation needs. Amen? We need men and women who will protect our freedoms and ensure them for all people. Now, now friends, um, what I think to be or who I think to be one of the great presidents, at least in my lifetime, was a man named Ronald Reagan. Anybody? Anybody know Ronald Reagan? He, he once said this when he was in office. He says, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our, our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like to live in America as free men. In other words, if we don't preserve this, then our children will not know what it means to be free. We need heroes. And what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is I want to take you back to a film we shot several years ago that kind of highlights our nation's first and probably greatest hero, a man named George Washington. Listen carefully. We're on a journey today to get to know one of the greats in American history. And he was great on so many levels. He was a great businessman, a great leader, a great father, a great husband, a great president, and even a great follower of Jesus Christ. We're on a road trip to the center of the life of our nation's very first president. A prototype of presidents, if you will. A man whose life symbolized the dawn of a bold new age. A man whose name was synonymous with words like freedom and democracy. He led our fledgling nation in what seemed to be a hopeless war against the greatest superpower on earth at the time. And he was at the helm of our nation at its birth. Any idea who we're talking about? You guessed it. George Washington. We finally made it to the birthplace of Washington. It sits on the shores of the Potomac River in Virginia, and it's commonly called the Pope's Creek Plantation. It now serves as one of the great historical landmarks in our country and is set aside as a national park. It's here that Washington was born on February 22nd, 1732, the son of Augustine and Mary Washington. They were part of the Virginian cultural and economic elite. They came from a long line of English gentry. Yes, Washington came from a family with money and lots of it. It's in this very place that George Washington took his very first steps. And of course, the most famous story that comes out of his childhood is, is young George chopping down the family cherry tree. The story goes something like this. His father came out of the house one day to find his prized cherry tree chopped down and lying on the ground. He asked young George if it was he who chopped down the family tree. And 
George Washington was tempted to lie, but in a moment of honesty, he says, Pa, I cannot tell a lie. I cannot tell a lie. It is I who used my hatchet to chop down your cherry tree. Well, whether the story is true or not, we'll never know. But the story stuck because George had already become widely known as a man of Christian character, a man of honesty and integrity. Oh! Medic? Medic, can I get a hand over here? We've moved locations about 50 miles up the Potomac River to the longtime family home of the Washingtons. It's called Mount Vernon Plantation. Now, at one point, this plantation consisted of over 8,000 acres of land, one of the largest land holdings in all of colonial America. Beautiful, isn't it? Despite his lack of formal education, Washington would learn the valuable science of land surveying. He would spend countless hours on horseback taking calculations and measurements and making drawings of the lay of the land. And soon his, his ability would become widely known throughout the area. Nobody could navigate this backwater wilderness quite like Washington could. It wasn't long before the skills that young Washington developed would serve him well as he would soon be called upon to serve Great Britain in the seven-year war with the French, the war now known as the French and Indian War. Remember at this time, Washington considered himself to be a loyal Englishman. By 1755, it was clear that the growing tension between the English and the French over disputed lands in the new America would not be resolved except through war. So the British and the Americans, who were still British citizens at that time, prepared to do battle with the French. General Braddock, commander-in-chief of all the British forces in the Americas, invited young Colonel Washington and his Virginian buckskins to join his forces with Washington serving as General Braddock's direct aide. As the English assembled to do battle, a group of Shawnee and Delaware Indians appeared and offered their allegiance with the Brits against the French. Washington urged General Braddock to accept this allegiance, but Braddock stubbornly refused, foolishly refused. Instead, he decided to take his entire army and to march them into an open field like this in order to intimidate the French and Indians by the sheer size and scope of his army. And about that idea of marching in an open field? No, not a good idea. The stubborn Braddock marched over 1,300 British troops to Fort Duquesne, which is now the city of Pittsburgh. The French commander had an army of about 850 men, but was prepared to use the tactics of ambush and guerrilla warfare. They cunningly set up in a wood some seven miles in advance of the fort, and as the British army marched through, they were sitting ducks. Suddenly, a storm of bullets from all sides from an invisible enemy that was set in the woods pounded the British. They returned fire with little effect. The Indians on the French side moved from tree to tree, picking off British soldiers who were perfect in their bright red uniforms. Nevertheless, countless eyewitnesses told that Washington bravely rode over every inch of the battlefield, carrying the general's orders. Amazingly, the two horses that Washington rode into battle that day were shot and killed right from underneath him, and he had no less than four bullet musket holes in his battle coat. Yet, he was unscathed. He later wrote this about the battle in his diaries, saying, quote, It is by the all-powerful dispensations of providence I have been protected beyond all human expectations. Put another way, Washington said, I should have been dead, but God alone protected me. Well, the battle was fierce that day, and even though the English lost hundreds of men, Braddock's would not allow his men to retreat. Finally, Braddock's himself was shot down and severely wounded, and with their leader finally down for the count, the English fled in total retreat, leaving behind everything, including the personal papers of Braddock's himself. It was a terrible defeat. 714 English lay dead, over half of their total number to only 35 dead on the French and Indian side. Come on, Jay, let's go. Oh, you guys ready to roll? Okay, roll it, let's go. After the battle, the Indians said something pretty amazing. Matter of fact, the chief said that he ordered that all of his greatest marksmen were to open fire on Washington, to take him down at any cost. But they said they could not even so much as nick him, could not even so much as hurt him. This led the Indians to say later that it was as if he was surrounded by this invisible force field, that, that he was the particular favorite of heaven, as if there was this great spirit protecting him. They said he was one who could never die in battle.
It was a bitter defeat for Washington as well as the British, but at the same time, this campaign, as well as others during the French and Indian War, served to advance his growing stature as a soldier, a patriot, and as a gentleman. War would soon break out again, but this time it was between the colonies and England herself. Washington would come once again to the aid of his fellow countrymen, but this time it was on the side of independence. He would soon be appointed as commander-in-chief of the entire Continental Army because of his sterling reputation as a leader and as a soldier. But the honor that you think that he would get from such a role would not be what we would think it would be. In rebellion in such a way, he was putting everything on the line. His life, the life of his family, his wealth, his fortune, and success, as we will soon see, was not guaranteed. The ragtag army General George Washington commanded was not the crack, cutting-edge military that America enjoys today. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Washington's troops consisted of untrained, undisciplined, and poorly equipped farmers, fishermen, and merchants. He had the almost impossible task of training these novices to take on the best-trained, most powerful army in the world of its time. Not only were Washington's men inexperienced, they were also greatly outnumbered. The commander of all the British forces at this time was a guy named General Howe, and he had at his command over 30,000 professionally trained redcoats. He also had thousands more mercenaries hired from Germany to defeat these rebellious Americans. But what many of us do not know is that Washington had at the height of his command only 10,000 Americans to do battle. Long before independence was declared, the fighting had already begun, and any careful observer would have noticed that the hand of God was at work in this freedom movement, and he was using this young leader named George Washington. There's a story dated March 4th, 1776, and it's about the battle that happened at Dorchester Heights, Maryland. It, it says that there was this army of about 15,000 British troops that had been assembled at the top of this hill, and below them were about 3,000 Americans. The English were set to crush the Americans in this final blow, but things didn't quite turn out the way that the English thought. There was this British captain named Charles Seward, and he wrote a diary about the events that occurred on this day. He said that the American gangs, and that's what they called the American soldiers, they called them gangs. And it says that these gangs appeared out of nowhere. He wrote then that just as the American troops began to move, a low mist, a cloud, a fog rolled in, concealing the Patriots' movements, while at the same time leaving the top of the hill perfectly clearly lit by the bright moon. The British could not see the Americans. In addition, he wrote that a great storm arose and it began to blow the noises that the Americans made away from the British. They couldn't even hear that the Americans were coming. General William Howe of England also put into the record the events of this day. He said that he had 15,000 troops ready to crush the Americans, but a furious storm, he wrote, suddenly came out of nowhere, concealing the movements of the Americans. He also said that the local people who lived in that area of that time said it was a storm like they had never seen before in the land. Well, he said the Americans worked furiously throughout the storm, and then when the storm finally cleared, the Americans had fortified their position, so much so that the British refused to attack, fearing that they would have been fighting the hand of God himself. And they were. As early on as August 27, 1776, just months after the American Revolution had begun, General Howe trapped Washington and all of his troops on Long Island in New York. And with Washington trapped on the island, Howe planned a final attack hoping to destroy the Americans the following morning. He expected an easy victory. But that defeat never came. The American Revolution dragged on for eight more long years. As it turned out, defeating the Americans on Long Island was England's best opportunity. But through Washington's skillful maneuvering, he led a retreat saying that the providential hand of God had allowed them to live to fight another day. Washington soon turned the tables on the British in his famed crossing of the Delaware River with his troops on December 26, 1776. He won a decisive victory over the English and their German mercenary allies at the famous Battle of Trenton. Let me tell you a little bit about this famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. Washington decided to launch a counterattack against the British by, by crossing the Delaware River 
only after he called all of his troops together and asked them to pray, to seek God's will for this next decision. And after prayer, Washington felt that God was saying to him that he needed to lead this attack, even though his troops, numbering about 3,000, would be greatly outnumbered against the British 15,000 or so. But he felt it was God's will. And just as Washington decided to move his troops, he records that a blizzard out of nowhere came upon them and it dumped snow and, get this, fog. So once again, the movements of the American troops were completely covered by the hand of God. This resulted in a complete surprise attack by the Americans. The Brits were caught completely off guard. As a matter of fact, the British sustained huge losses. Several hundred men were killed. Over 1,500 were taken prisoner. And get this, only two of Washington's fighting men were killed. Surely the hand of God was with them. The impossible happened. This nation of nobodies defeated the greatest empire in the world. Despite even hardly having an army, the greatest army on earth was utterly defeated. This kind of leadership, this kind of strategic thinking of knowing when to fight and when to not fight, to when to to move forward and when not to move forward, characterized the leadership of Washington throughout the American Revolution. It was this kind of self-discipline and this kind of selfless behavior that exemplified Washington and made his men love him and the whole nation follow him. So when it came time for this new nation to pick a leader, who do you think they picked? Washington! Duh! And Washington understood as the new leader of this new nation that everything he did set a precedent for not only himself, but for every president that would come behind him. So he flatly refused to be called a king or even a governor. As a matter of fact, he even publicly rebuked anyone who would try to thrust that title upon him. Instead, he chose the title of Mr. President, trying to convey a whole new way of democracy. Washington worked for unity. He inspired Americans, both past and present, with his bravery, with his integrity, and with his self-control. In many ways, he set the standard of what it means to be the president of the United States of America. Even now, millions of Americans consider him to be the greatest American that ever lived. But there's part of the story of Washington that isn't told. There's part of the story of Washington that our media and our schools either don't teach you or won't teach you. It's that that Washington was a man deeply committed to his Christian faith. He was a man who was committed to faith in the God of the Bible. Listen to the words that were written in his own hand, penned in his diary some 300 years ago. Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties that thou request of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and the forgiveness of sin, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross of Christ for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and hast given me assurance of my salvation. I don't know what you heard about George Washington on the History Revisionist channel, but to me, that sounds like George Washington was a devout Christian man, that he loved God. He was a real Christian. It just wasn't a Sunday experience for him or something that he just talked about just to make himself look good. His faith was real and genuine. As a matter of fact, at the very last speech he ever gave as the president of the United States as he was leaving his second term in 1796, this is what he said. He said, of all the habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He went on to say that if any man was to try to remove these supports, he could hardly even consider himself a patriot. George Washington ended his speech with this little phrase. He says, it is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. George Washington is our country's founding father. And this father laid for us a foundation that was built around an unbridled love for God. First of all, don't you guys laugh? Wasn't that incredible? I mean, to to know that the bedrock of our nation The cornerstone of our nation was laid by men and women of faith. Not this kind of, oh, I believe in God, but but it is unmistakable that their faith was a faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Pretty cool, isn't it? 
Well, what I would like to do is just over the next few minutes, if you would allow, is I, I, I want to talk just for a little bit about this idea of freedom. You know, um, it's Independence Day, or it's Independence Day weekend, and this is the weekend as Americans we celebrate freedom. And uh, it was our third president, Thomas Jefferson, who said this, the God who gave us life is the same who gave us liberty. In other words, the God who gave us life is also the God who gave us freedom, that he put this in us. You see, somewhere deep in the fabric of American culture or society is this idea of freedom. I think you know this about Americans. We will toe the line for a long time. But if you push an American just a little too far, they're going to stand up for their rights. We believe in freedom, don't we? Y'all with me on this? You push too far, we're going to say enough is enough is enough. Because freedom is somehow deeply instilled inside of us. And this freedom, let me tell you, friends, it comes from God himself. Because God is a God who is free. Do you realize this? I'm sure you do. But if you thought about this, that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. And nobody is going to stop him. You ever try stopping a hurricane? You ever try stopping a tornado? Nobody's going to stop the God of nature. Here's how the scripture says it. Psalm 135, verse 6. It says, the Lord does whatever he pleases. In other words, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And the scripture says this about me and you. Think about this. That we are created in the image of God. That we bear his likeness. And and so this means that inside of us, we have this woven deep in our DNA, this desire to be free. Do you realize that God created you to do whatever you want, whenever you want? You have the ability to determine your destiny. You have the ability to determine how you're going to think and what you're going to do and what you're going to say and what you're going to become in this world. Freedom is placed in us by God. I want you to think about this from the very earliest stages of humanity. Go back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. What happened? God gave Adam and Eve freedom to eat of the forbidden fruit. Do you remember this? I mean, I've often thought about this. Why would God even allow them the temptation? Why would God even allow them to make their, their, their own choice in the matter of choosing right over wrong? Why, friends? The only thing I can think of is that God values freedom. That God values our free will. That God purposely gives us a free will. As a matter of fact, I believe that this is taught throughout all of Scripture. This value of freedom occurs over and over and over and over in the Scriptures. Here's what it says in Galatians 5, chapter 1, about this idea of freedom. It says, you are called to freedom. You're called to be a free people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says it like this. Live as people who are free. Live like this. Choose your own destiny. Figure out what you want to become in this world and go for it. You're free to do this. And of course, it was Jesus himself, our Lord and our Savior. He, he, he said it like this. He says that the truth, you remember this one, will set you free. It's when you know the truth of God that you'll truly find freedom. But you can't help but wonder why God, knowing that this world would be so screwed up because of our freedom, why would he allow this? I mean, think about what we've done with our freedom. Does anybody follow the news at all? Would you agree with me that things are just messed up in our world? Would you say that people have used their freedom for all sorts of evil? I would. I mean, I don't know. It is so bad out there. It probably didn't even come on your radar. But this group called ISIS, this Islamic terrorist group in the Middle East, do you realize they killed like 74 children this week because those children, children, did not worship their Ramadan holy days like they thought they they should. I mean, it barely makes the news that 74 kids were killed like that for nothing. Freedom has been abused by humanity. Look in our own lands. Look at the violence. Look at the anger. Look at the the greed, the, the lust. The, the unbridled, selfish desires of humanity. Just look at it all. Wouldn't you agree that we have abused our freedom? Amen? Amen? But listen, friends, why would God allow this? If, if you think about it, why would God allow humanity to abuse freedom? 
like this? What would God have in it for the, for what, what is God's purpose in giving us freedom if he just knows that we're going to abuse it? Let, let, me, let me read this to you. It's found um, in the book of John, the gospel of John. Jesus is speaking and he talks about the kind of freedom that God really intended for humanity. Jesus is speaking to some people, some Jewish people who have come to believe in him, who have come to follow him. And look at God's intention for freedom, really what it's all about, the kind of freedom that he's speaking of. It says this, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus answered or said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. In other words, if it's real to you, if you're, if you're clinging to his leadership, following his leadership, that's when you are truly a disciple. That's when you're truly a Christian. Not just because you go to church, not because you were raised in America, but when you truly give your heart and soul to him, when you follow him to the very best of your ability, that's when you can be called his child, his disciple, one who comes after him. And then he says this, When you come after me like that, when you obey my teachings, then you will know the, what is it? The truth, and the truth will set you, come on, free. It's when you know this kind of truth in your life that you'll be set free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. Listen very closely to what they're saying. We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Pause for a second. These people are just like Americans today. They didn't know their own history. They're saying, remember who Abraham was? He was the father of the faith, right? And they're going, hey, we've never been slaves to anybody. We're not slaves. And Jesus is going, what? You forgot your own history. Do you not remember the Babylonians? They took you into slavery. Do you not remember the Egyptians? They took you into slavery. Don't you remember the Assyrians? They took you into slavery. And you're living right now under Rome. You're slaves. And he says, way more than that. You've got it all screwed around because just because you think you can go out and do what you want today, you can go out and you can do, you know, whatever you please. He says, you think you're, you're free? You're not free. He says, there's a whole different kind of freedom that God offers to us. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Pause. Anybody sin in the room? How about you people in the back? You don't have to raise your hand. You, you sin at all? Then you're a slave. Then you're a slave. Anybody in the room have habits that dominate your life that you wish would change? Anybody? Then you're a slave. Oh, you're free. You can go out and do whatever you want. But Jesus says, you're a slave if you have stuff that controls your soul, that controls your mind, that controls your hands, your habits, that control your mouth, that control your eyes. He says, you are a slave. You're living in freedom. You think you're living in freedom, but you're not free at all. He says, there's a whole different level of freedom out there. And that's the kind of freedom I want for you. He says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave... He's already established that we're slaves. He says, you have no permanent place in the family. But then he says this, but a son, but someone who has made a child, a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son, if the real son, the son of God, if he sets you free, (laughs) you are free indeed. Glory to God. He says there's a whole different level of freedom. He says there's a kind of freedom out there that is really not free indeed. But there is a kind of freedom out there that is true type of freedom. And and we think we're free because we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, but Jesus says you're not really free. God God is looking for a different kind of freedom. You know the kind of freedom that God is looking for? God wants us, listen carefully, to want what he wants and then freely do it. God is wanting us to want his best for our life and then for us to freely choose to obey him. That's real freedom. That's when truth sets you free. When you realize that the things that we think were, that, that, that could bring us happiness or that could bring us freedom that we think, oh, I can do this. I can look at what I want to look at. 
I can drink or smoke or whatever it is that has held you. Same-sex attraction, greed, lust, jealousy. Oh, I can do that because I'm free. I'm an American, I'm free. He says, you're not free. You know what freedom is? He says, freedom is when you can do what you will no longer regret. You're free when you do things that you will not regret tomorrow. You're free when you will do things that you will not regret tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, or all of eternity from now. When you figure out how to live like that, then you're free. If I was to be honest and you were to be honest, most of us have a whole bunch of regrets in our life. Anybody? We have things we regret. Things we're disappointed in. Because we thought we knew best. We thought we could figure it out. Let me tell you something, friends. I think one of the reasons that God gives us freedom, one of the reasons that God allows us to screw up so much. Anybody screw up with something in your life? Man. I think one of the reasons God allows me to screw up so much is so that eventually I see that my ways are not good ways. My ways are not as good as his way. And that I repent and turn toward him. I think God allows failure in my life. Disappointment, regret. I think he allows sin to be my choice so that I realize there is a better choice out there. He allows pain enough in my life to cause me to want something different. Freedom is when we want what he wants for us and we freely choose to obey it because we know he is best. And I'm afraid that a whole bunch of us, we're going to go celebrate this weekend where we've been celebrating. We say, we're free, we're free, we're free. We're Americans. You're not free. You're not free. Your soul is not free. And, and maybe today or maybe this weekend, I know, um, I know this can seem a little awkward or a little weird. But maybe we just need to repent and to turn back toward God and just say, God, I'm sorry for trying to do it my way. Your way is better than my way. And God, I've allowed this or that or this or that or this or that to enslave me. And I don't want to be a slave to anybody but you. And so maybe we could um, just pray together. Maybe we could just bow our heads and say, God, I want to be close to you. God, I want to be close to you. I want to be in right relationship with you. Would it be okay if I, if I let us in prayer. We, we, can we do this? Could you just bow your head? Just out of respect for everybody around. God, we're thankful um, to be Americans. At least I think most of us are. We're thankful for a land where we have opportunity, where we can work hard and become what we want to become ultimately. God, we're thankful that you allow us to choose our own pathways. Even when it comes to sin in our life, things that will hurt us and things that, that hurt your heart. But God, that sin and that freedom has made many of us slaves. And so, God, we come and, and literally turn our hearts back towards you. God, as a people, as a nation, we confess our sin. It's, it's, it's to our shame what is going on in our land. We're calling right wrong and wrong right. God, forgive our people. Forgive our land. Restore our hearts back to you. But God, uh, that will never change until our individual hearts change. Starting in this room, God, there are those of us who would say openly and honestly, I'm sorry. I confess my sin to you, God. 
I've, I've allowed slavery to enter into my life. I've taken my freedom and I've abused it and I've made it wrong. I've used it to my own shame. And if my life was to be laid bare before all men and women, it would not be honoring to me, to my family, or to your name. And I am sorry. And I need you to forgive me. I want you to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to restore all that has been broken. God, I'm asking you to set me free from whatever it is, whatever it is in your life. You ask God right now, you say these words, God, set me free. And then you tell him what has enslaved you right now. And you give that to him. And you leave it to him. You leave it with him.